Today, since this subsequent episode is still emerging during Valentine's Month, let's talk some more about love. Welcome to Coffee with Creamer, where you get to sit down with our host, Dr. Barry Creamer, for a conversation about faith, life, and culture. We'll look at old ideas through a new lens, turn those culture wars on their head, and paint a picture of the way things could be. If you like your thinking deep and your coffee hot, pull up a chair. You're in the right place. So I I ended, didn't quite conclude, but ended the previous episode where we talked about what love is not, and and by that, not just the things that are opposed to love, but the things that characterize love and the things that oppose love, which help us understand what it is. So understanding what love is by what it's not, that was the idea. And then we came to the conclusion, uh, or at least the end of the discussion in 1 John chapter 4, where it says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. Those are verses 18 and 19 in 1 John 4. We ended there with the question, why is overcoming fear so essential to love, to the nature of what love is. And by the time we end the discussion overall, that's what I want us to understand, what love actually is or how we could characterize that emotion, that reality itself. And on the way there, we have to answer the question, why is it so essential to love that it doesn't involve fear? Why is overcoming fear essential to the nature of love? And it comes in the fulfillment of the way Jesus answers the question, you know, what's the great commandment? And it comes in those two parts. And the first part of it is love the Lord your God. We mentioned this at the beginning of the previous episode, love the Lord your God. And then the other part is, and your neighbor is yourself, right? These are the things he says, all the law and the prophets hang on those two commandments, which are just alike, as he says it. So he gives one first. Anyway, we had that conversation last time. So when he says this, love the Lord your God, Jesus says this. He's giving us the commandment from Deuteronomy 6, the Shema, which we all know. Now, this is the commandment. This is the Torah. This is the, the sum of the Torah. This is the law. But of Jesus, the law of love. It is the statutes and rules. This is Deuteronomy chapter 1. This is literally what it says. Now, this is the commandment in Deuteronomy 1. The statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you. And then he goes through a few things and gets to verse 4 and says the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And then he explains what that would mean in two different statements. First, learn his commands in verse 6, and these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and so on. We've gone through 
uh, these commandments before, so I won't, I won't dwell on them. But that, that first statement is just learn the commands. And then second, the second part of loving the Lord your God with all your heart and so on is to serve him alone, no one else. So by the time he gets to verse 13 in that passage in Deuteronomy 6, he says, it is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. And so what he says in, you know, in the Gospels, John, same author, uh, in the Gospels in John 14, verse 15 says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So that means knowing his commandments and then in keeping his commandments, serving only him. But then the question is, why do we do that? And what John tells us in 1 John is, this is what we read just a moment ago, that it's because he first loved us. That's why we love him. But what that says in the Old Testament, in the very next chapter following the Shema, the Lord gives us these statements. It's not a new teaching that John is giving us in this sense. It's what we should have understood to begin with, but we only fully realize in Christ. And so in Deuteronomy 7, the very next chapter after the Shema, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one, love the Lord your God, and so on, and then learn his commandments, serve him alone. Why? Chapter 7 puts it this way in verse 6. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession, his treasured possession, not just he chose you, you got to have somebody. He chose you and he treasures this relationship that you are his. You, he has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession, he says to Israel. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because, and this is the most powerful part of understanding what John is saying about how we're supposed to understand the love that he had for us. This is the because he first loved us part. So in chapter 7, verse 7, he goes on to say, Yahweh saying to his people through Moses, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you. This is how most of us think about love. Oh, well, I mean, this was the most important person. This was the most beautiful person. This was the wealthiest person, whatever. And therefore, I established this, this has nothing to do with that. God establishes a relationship with these people and where they could say, oh, we really had to earn that one, they can't. And so he explains that to them by saying it wasn't because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. And then when you're trying to figure out what the answer is, it becomes sort of circular, meaning there is no justification for it. It's just unconditional. And I know the term is overused and misunderstood, but here it is. But it is because, he goes on in verse 8 to say, the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And those are not distinct things because the Lord loves you and he's keeping the oath. This is in giving the oath to Abram, making the commitment to love Abram, even though he was nobody. He didn't even have his own son. He didn't have an own, his own offspring. And now he, they are the people that God is bringing out of Egypt 
with this mighty hand. The point is that here, on the point of discussing love the Lord your God, it's not because of all of the things that he does for us, although those would be motivation to love him. It is because if if we made it on the basis of everything that he does for us, our love would come and go with what he does for us. The nature of his relationship with us is that when we least deserved it, when there was no deserving of it whatsoever, in that context, he chose to love us. And so we, we, if we don't love God, the only reason would be because we don't understand who he is inside and out. And that doesn't even make sense in the context of what I just said, unless you think through what it means to describe God that way. Just like we were talking about John Bunyan and scratching him and him bleeding scripture. I'm saying to you, if we don't love God, and if we do, John says, it's because he first loved us, right? So if we don't love God, it's because we don't understand who he is. You know, if we could scratch God, how would we measure the blood that would come out, right? How would we know exactly what he is? The the reason we don't love him must be because we don't understand what's inside of him. So if we could scratch God, you know, in this ridiculous comparison, if we could reach up into heaven and bring him down to where we are, and if he could just feel what we feel, if he could know what loss is or isolation, if we could just scratch God, if we could tear the flesh from his back or puncture the skin of his hands and his feet, then we would find, and we did, that he would bleed always and only love. That's why I'm saying For us to know God would be to love him, which is what John is saying. We love him because he first loved us. And that's why John, in describing what we're supposed to understand about God from the Old Testament, when God says to his people, I chose you because I loved you, and I didn't love you because of something in you. I loved you because of something in me. And when we pierced the Messiah then we got to see what was in God, his love for us. So on the side where we're having to answer the question, you know, what is love? Well, there's the side of love, the part of love that's so important that just has to do with loving God because we understand that he already loves us. And so we're just returning love to him. We're reflecting back to him what he's giving to us. Love the Lord your God. But then the second half is to love your neighbor. The second half of the great commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. And when we love our neighbor as ourself, exactly how does that look? And this ties in to answer the question, why is it so important that love casts out fear, that there is no fear in love? And so if you put it all in order, you know, we we love him because he first loved us. And his love for us, by its nature, because it wasn't earned, erases our condemnation and therefore erases our fear. That's what 
1 John 4 is explaining. There's no condemnation. There's no punishment. Fear is about punishment. So if there's no punishment, why would we live in fear, right? It's all gone. So his love would erase our condemnation and therefore erase our fear. And then what we would come to know is that real love comes our way. We understand real love because he's loved us when we didn't deserve it. The grounding of our love is not we love ourselves, you know? Hey, uh, love your neighbor as you love yourself. If, if you take the grounding of that instruction, love your neighbor as you love yourself, then you end up, if you take the grounding of it to be, well, you love yourself, so since you love yourself, you can now love your neighbor, if that's the grounding of it, that's how you would read it. But that's not the grounding of our love. The grounding of our love is that we love our, we love each other. We love one another. We love him. That we love blank because he first loved us. That's the whole point of the statement that John is making. The grounding is not our love for ourselves. The grounding is is his love for us. He first loved us, which means we love others the way he loved us because the grounding of our love is his love for us. It can't be anything else. So when he says there's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears, this is all in 1 John 4, just picking up from the end of the passage I read earlier, but then extending it a little further to show why it changes our relationship with other people when the love that we have is simply a response to the love that God had for us. For fear has to do with punishment, he says, and whoever fears hasn't been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. That's the grounding. He first loved us. And if anyone says, so this this follows naturally from it, we wouldn't automatically go this direction. But it's obvious once you see it. If anyone says, he goes on to say, I love God, but then hates his brother, well, he's going to say it more harshly, but I will say, well, he doesn't understand the love that he's supposed to have because God's love for us was when we deserved it least. And if we're loving because God first loved us, then it wouldn't make us any sense at all for us to look at someone and say, but I can't love him, can't love her, I, I, I can't tolerate that. Because if anyone says, and this is how John says it, it's, it's even harsher than what I just said. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, He's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And there's a sense in which you can simply take that the way I think almost all of us take it. You can see your brother so you can express your love. So even when you pretend it and you say, oh, I love God, but I hate that person over there, you're just lying because you're able to say, oh, yeah, I'll pray for you. But you don't do anything for them. You know, you say you love them, but you don't. And it's evident in the fact that you can pretend that you love God because he's invisible and nobody can tell. You can take it that way. I think it, it probably means at least that. But I think it also means this. You just flat haven't seen God if you can't love your neighbor. Because if you'd seen God, you would have seen him through and through to know why you love him because he first loved you (laughs) means whatever love you have has to go out without any qualification whatsoever because you sure weren't qualified to receive the love God had for you. It is a profound recognition once you finally 
see all of that together. And so John concludes it by saying, and this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. And the, the command is, it, it's not an arbitrary command. The command is the nature of the love that we have because God first loved us. You can see what I'm saying. So it's so important that love cast out fear because if it doesn't, then it's qualified. And we think of it as qualified and something we can hold back from some people and things like that. So what it means in casting out fear and for our love to be there is that we have to love indiscriminately. Uh, And I, I know we're not super comfortable with that language, but I mean, that's what it's saying. It means to love indiscriminately. That's a, and you know, I'll use Hebrews 13 to make the point because as he gets to the conclusion of that book, he starts just giving these edicts, these commands in order to say, hey, if you're going to live the Christian life, you need to do this. And where he starts is with love love for each other, love for strangers, and love for those who are suffering. Let brotherly love continue. This is Philadelphia. You're familiar with the term. But then also, do not neglect to show, the translation, show hospitality to strangers. This is in verse 1, brotherly love, Philadelphia, let, hey, Philadelphia, Minato, let let brotherly love continue. But then in the second verse, it's philoxenios. So it's Philadelphia, love the brothers, and then it's philoxenios, xenios, strangers. So the hospitality is not just hospitality. As you're reading it in the text, it is love your brother and love strangers because thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Done a whole episode on how that's about Sodom and Gomorrah and the angels showing up and throughout history and including the two by two that went out for Jesus to proclaim the kingdom. The strangers who show up at the gate are our opportunity to show our love for God in the way we treat strangers or outsiders, and yeah, even threatening and scary people. Anyway, the third verse goes on because we're supposed to love the brothers and then we're supposed to love the strangers. And then in verse three, he goes on to say, and remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them. And it may not be obvious to you why this is so important, but later when we talk about a definition for love, what it actually means to love someone, this is it that you don't look at the harm coming to someone else and shrug it off. The nature of empathy, the nature of caring is wrapped up in the real definition of love. To remember those who are in prison, that's not the definition, but we'll get to it in a minute. As though in prison with them and, and those who are mistreated, remember them since you also are in the body. And he goes on in other explanations as well. So, the, the point in Hebrews 13 is that we're just, you know, you're just loving everybody. You're loving the people who are close to you. Love, you love the people who are strangers to you. You didn't even know before. And you love those who have been removed from you by no choice of your own. You care about what they're going through. And you love each other and strangers and the suffering because the basis of our love is that God loved us when we were dead in our trespasses, when we had nothing. That's the language in Ephesians 2. Among whom, you'll remember picking it up midstream, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, 
carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And we, we deserve nothing more than that. We all know that. But God, being rich in mercy, because of what? Because of the great love with which he loved us. At the core of it is not mercy. At the core of it is love, which expressed itself in the mercy that he had abundantly toward us. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. And by the way, you know where that leads. It leads immediately to the great mystery that the Gentiles, the outsiders, the strangers, the interlopers even, are fellow heirs in that gift so that we love the brothers and we love the strangers just like we were commanded to do. Go read in Ephesians 3. Just read the very next chapter. That's the great mystery of the gospel. In, and if we, if we put it in the context of the holiness code, in Leviticus 19, going back into the Old Testament and seeing how that comes forward into the New Testament in the very stories where Jesus is talking about what it, what it means to love your neighbor. It goes like this. In Leviticus 19, it's worded this way. And I'll just read the pertinent sections. In verse two, you shall be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. We're supposed to be like he is. And so in verse 17, he says, you shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then he repeats, I am Yahweh. I'm the one you're supposed to be like. So you love your neighbor as yourself. And then he goes on to say, and when at the end of the chapter, a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you. And then in case someone thinks, well, you're stretching it to say that means you got to treat him like a neighbor. He says it himself and you shall love him as yourself. Why? Because you were strangers in the land of Egypt and I am Yahweh, your God. You are supposed to be holy like me, so you love like I loved you. And so in Luke 10, when we have the Good Samaritan story, after Jesus has answered the question, what's the great commandment? Love the Lord your God, love your neighbor as yourself, but who's my neighbor? And he answers. He says this, describing the love that we're commanded to have for our neighbor and the stranger, so that we can be holy the way God is holy, so that we can be like him, so we can bleed what he bleeds in Luke 10, 33. But a Samaritan, this outsider, as he journeyed, who is living out the holiness code, who's not clean in any way in the minds of the Jewish audience that Jesus is speaking to, is holy because he's doing what God commanded in the holiness code. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came, you know the story, came to where this beaten person was, came to where he was. And when he saw him, what did he have? This is the core of the story where Jesus answers the question, and what does it mean to love your neighbor as yourself? He said, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He cared about what that person was going through. 
And so in Matthew 7, 12, when Jesus brings it up in the Sermon on the Mount as what we refer to as the golden rule, and he says, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, because this is the law and the prophets. That's not the equivalent of love. It's not, well, I did everything I'd want them to do for me, so I guess I loved them. It is derivative of what love is, though. If we don't do that, we are certainly not loving. If we don't care about what others are going through, and if we don't care as much about people who are trying to cross a river as we do about ourselves, then we just don't love the way God loved us. That's just all there is to it. We have to care as much about anyone, anyone, regardless of the language, regardless of the background, regardless of what they're trying to do to us. There are people in the Middle East who would love to kill us right now. True. There are people in the Middle East who just want to live a peaceful life as well. You know who we're supposed to love? Both of them. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not thinking it was easy for God to love us. I'm not thinking it was easy for him to go to the cross. And yet there we are. So the core of love, and this is where I've been trying to get in these two episodes, the core of love is something beyond the actions that it causes us to take and avoid. And it does. It causes us to take and avoid all kinds of actions, and you can definitely look at a person's actions and say, I don't think you love me. Uh, I don't think you really are, uh, you know, have the right attitude to what God wants us to have. You can do that because there are certain derivatives of love that would be necessary, including having compassion. And so how would I how would I say what you know what is love itself what does it mean and so I'll do this in a it's in a Thomistic sense that means Thomas Aquinas if you uh, follow Thomas Aquinas natural law and all the things that come from Thomistic theology you'll kind of understand where I'm coming from in a Thomistic sense love is to will the good of another to choose the good of another. But not simply action, not just, hey, I'm going to do good things for that person. That is important. Obviously, you have to do. You can't just say, be warmed and filled and not give them the things that are needful to the body. That would be nonsense. That's what James points out. We're not saying that. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying you can give everybody all the food and water you want. You can give them all the money you want. It's why some people who are are very generous don't understand when they've given and given and given And the people they thought would know now that they loved them don't know it. They're like, oh, you just throw money at everything. You just want to pay me so that I'll think uh, you care about me. And they're like, why did you think I was giving you the money? They don't get it at all. You can have the signs of love and not love, but you cannot love and not have the signs of love. That's what I'm talking about here. It's not simply action. There's more to love than that. It is internal. There is a passion that we have when we love. And it's the passion we have toward others or things, and I mean the emotional value with which we regard them. I think of them and this emotion arises. And what is that emotion? It's this passion that we have towards others or towards things so that when they or their good are absent, we desire them. 
we have a passion or a fervor or a zeal to recover their presence or the presence of their good. It's the reason a person would be homesick. That feeling, that sensation, not just, I need to go home because that's where my food is. That's where I'm most comfortable. But that, I feel sick. My stomach is, is, is groaning. I'm, I'm, I just can't do this. That when someone being absent or someone suffering gives you a passion or a fervor or a zeal for their good to be recovered or for their presence to be recovered, then you're feeling love. In the same way, when their good is present or when they are present, then you're just delighting in it. You are emotionally and thoroughly blessed and rejoicing with them in it. When you delight in their presence or their good, and when they are absent or their good is absent, that's all you can desire. Then you have a sense of what it means to love. That's what this is talking about. And so it means so much. When the psalmist in that psalm I always refer to as my favorite psalm, Psalm 116, and I've gone through 80 of the psalms, 71 of the psalms to this point, as I'm going through the Psalms one by one, and, and it's still king, Psalm 116, still my king, still the king of my Psalms. That Psalm, you know, says so clearly and profoundly and significantly at the beginning, I love the Lord. And he talks about why he loves the Lord in all of these different ways. And then he gives the reciprocal of that in the very middle of the Psalm, the heart of the Psalm, I think, uh, sort of the, the, the core of understanding what's true about God's care for us, because he's, he's saying these things, I love the Lord because of what he's done, but he's saying it in the midst of a lot of suffering going on, a lot of loss and struggle, a lot of which he's brought on himself. But in the middle of all of that, after he has said, I love the Lord at the beginning, he says, you know, this is why. And it's obviously for the same reason John tells us we love him because he first loved us. He doesn't say those words, but this is the meaning in Psalm 116 when you get to the middle and he says, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. We read that casually, and this is meaningful. There's, I don't even have to condemn this. It's a wrong reading, but even if you read it this way, you would still be getting at this truth. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. We take to mean he wanted that saint to be with him now, so he takes them to heaven. So it's, it's valuable to the Lord that now that saint is in their presence. And you can see how that fits the definition of love. It makes sense that we would interpret it that way. God loved this person and he wanted them to be with him in heaven. But that's not what it's saying. What it's saying is he cares when you are suffering. And when you're walking through the valley of the shadow of death, when you're facing the end of your life and you think no one cares You think you can throw stones at all the temples and there's no God there even to care. He actually is there and he actually does care about everything going on in your life, even as you're facing death. That's an oblique reference to Stephen Crane for those who recognize it. My my reason for saying all of that is when David in Psalm 116 says, I love the Lord, he ends up saying it's because I know that even when I'm in my worst predicament, even when I cannot see any end to the suffering that's going on here in my life or in others, I know it matters to him. That is, I know he first loved me. And it's 
It's exactly, this statement, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints, is exactly what's going on when Jesus comes to visit Lazarus in, the, in his grave. When Lazarus, when he gets the news, you know, Lazarus has died and Jesus comes back. In John 11, as it describes that moment when Jesus comes to Mary and Martha and sees all the grieving going on with them, this is the moment when we understand what his love is. And, and, and again, it's, it's in the passage, word for word. Listen to what it says. When Jesus saw her weeping, and also the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit. He was greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. It's, it's a verse that should have been cordoned off by itself. You know, we're, we always love the passage. It's the shortest verse in the Bible. That's, how, that's why we refer to it. It should be cordoned off by itself because it is the verse that says he actually does love us. He's not just using us for something else. Without explanation, without justification, without foundation, he just is through and through love. And so he loves us. And so it says, Jesus wept. And what do the Jews say in response to it? They don't say, ooh, see how he weeps. They don't say, ooh, see how much compassion he has. They say, Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. Because when he saw his suffering, he suffered. When he saw their suffering, he suffered. When he saw his absence, he suffered. He expressed that love. So what I want to ask you to do, and I'm going to conclude here, for both of these episodes, we'll have it done. And I'm going to ask you to do it. I'm going to ask you, sitting there by yourself, driving in the car, I don't know, listening on your headphones, mostly falling asleep, I don't know, whatever it is you're doing right now, you fill in the blank here. I'm going to say, when I am, and I'm going to say something, I want you to fill in the blank with the words, he loves me. If you say it a few times, you might finally realize that it's true. When I am sinful and selfish, then you say, he loves me. Nah, you didn't say it, I know. You're just sitting there. Don't just sit there, say it. At least mouth the words. You don't have to say it out loud. Somebody might make fun of you. I get it but at least mouth the words. When I am selfish and sinful, you say, he loves me. When I am obedient, yeah, he loves me. When I am doubting or afraid, yeah, he does. And when I am alone or when I feel like I'm alone, even when I'm surrounded by others, even there, he loves you. You, if we can say it to ourselves and realize the truth of it, I'm not, it doesn't make it true. It just finally acknowledges in us what is true about his love for us, that it's not wavering. It's not going up and down with our behavior or attitude or opinion of ourselves. 
When we are selfish and sinful or obedient, doubting and afraid or lonely and isolated or having the greatest day of our lives in every one of those moments, he loves us, absolutely. And so this is also true, that he left heaven to be born in a cave because, this is where you would plug your phrase in, he loves me. He climbed Golgotha to be hung on a tree because he loves me. He rose from the dead and gave me his spirit because he loves me. And he commands that I love him because he loves me. He commands that I love everyone else for exactly the same reason. So, if we don't love others, it's because we don't love God, the God who loved us. Why not rather that we do know how deeply God loves us, that we do, therefore, love him, and that we do, therefore, love others the way he loves us? us. Thanks for joining us for Coffee with Creamer. Your cup of coffee may be finished, but we are not. (laughs) Come back next week for a refill as we sit down to examine a new set of ideas and cultural issues. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or visit our website at barrycreamer.com. Until next time, Keep your mug hot and your mind sharp.